Merry Christmas. I hope you're all ready. I hope you're not watching the clock this morning because you got to rush out and finish some Christmas shopping in the next 48 hours. I hope you're way farther around the down the road than that. I want to say, I know Caleb already mentioned our guests, but I know we have a lot of people here who have brought family that are here for the holidays and and uh, some people that uh, uh, we don't get to see very often, like like Zach over here. Good to have you here, Zach. And, and um, we just want to welcome you all. So glad you're here. And if we can be of any service to you whatsoever, please let us know. We're glad to have you. So probably you're not used to a pastor approaching a Christmas message from the book of Revelation. I'm assuming that. I'm assuming that. You may have, but but I was really uh, just impressed this week about this small portion, six verses from the book of Revelation and what they say about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If, you, if you're not familiar with that term, incarnation, it just talks about how Jesus, who was God, who is God, and has been God for all eternity. There's never been a point where he's been less than God. He's not a, a second level God. He is God. Amen? But what the incarnation speaks of is that that God, that eternal being, became a man so that he could save the souls of men and women. And that's what we're celebrating at Christmas. The incarnation, the first coming, the first advent of Jesus Christ. We've been talking about that a lot this month. Two weeks ago, you may recall, Tom Hall told us how the people in Old Testament times, from the various, very earliest rather portions of the Old Testament, literally three chapters into the Bible, were promised that Jesus Christ would come. It was written like this, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, that's the devil he's talking to, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The, the implication there is the, the enemy would inflict a minor wound on Jesus, and Jesus would absolutely destroy him, would crush his head. And so the incarnation that we just spoke of fulfilled this promise when the head crusher, as Tom called him, appeared to redeem humankind and destroy the devil's power. Now last week I shared with you not how Christ would come, but how Christ did appear. And he emerged from a very real family line in actual human history, not a legend or a myth. And and even though we saw that his family was filled with bad guys and deeply flawed good guys, humanity's sins and flaws were not a, a monkey wrench in the plan. They were the very point of Christ's coming. First Timothy puts the summation of the gospel, this importance of the human sin and the purpose of Jesus coming. It, it, it sums it up like this. It says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was not a secondary goal. That was the primary singular purpose for Jesus Christ appearing, was to save sinners like you and I. So I want to build on this today. I want to discuss how the events that were set in motion by Christ's first coming, although we talked about this last week, they were rooted in history. I want to talk about how they're divine in purpose, 
how they're progressive in nature, how that they're cosmic in scope, and how that they're eternal in duration. So, and the purpose of this, the reason I want to go through all of this with you is because I want us all to enjoy the celebrations of next week. I just want you to know the church is not against you having a good time. I want you to enjoy the celebrations next week. I want you to have a great time as you share gifts, as you break bread, as you connect with family and friends. But I want you to do all of that with a great sense of reflection and worship versus consumerism and materialism. I want you to do it with great reflection, great worship. And I want the gospel to literally invade your your Christmas. I want, I want your, your Christmas to be gospel saturated and that God would be glorified in everything you choose to do this next week. So first, of those things I want to talk to you this, about this morning, we, we're going to see how the story of Jesus taking on humanity was divine in purpose. Now, what do I mean when I say divine in purpose? What, I, what I'm in, uh, say, stating is that God ordained and God was sovereign over these events. From Jesus' birth to his miracles, his teachings, and then all the way to his sacrificial death, his burial, his glorious resurrection, his triumphant ascension to God's right hand. Now, what I am saying is that those things were not by accident. They weren't left to chance. The world was not lucky to have Jesus. All of that Jesus did and was and taught and and performed, everything he did was preplanned by God. He wrote the script. I want you to consider this prophetic passage on this point. This is written before Jesus showed up. So Isaiah 53, the most powerful prophetic passage probably in the scriptures. Isaiah 53, verse 10 says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That crushing, of course, is speaking of his his redemptive death on the cross, saying God planned that. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt on the cross, he shall see his offspring. In other words, that he's going to produce children. That's you and I from his work on the cross. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Did you know that Jesus Christ has accounted you righteous because he bore your iniquities? And this was written 600 years before Jesus' birth. You think Jesus, do you think God had in mind what he was going to do with Jesus? All of Jesus' suffering was according to the will of God, the will of the Lord. And yet, it didn't destroy Jesus. The will of the Lord, as Isaiah says here, prospered in his hand. Though he was crushed, he would see his offspring. Though he suffers, yet he will be satisfied. How are these things not contradictory? Because it was the Lord's guiding hand at work in all of those actions. The will of the Lord that prospered in his hand, that, that caused him to be crushed, was that many would be accounted righteous. And Jesus could only accomplish this end of the will of God by bearing our iniquities. Because guess what? You and I certainly could not bear them. They were crushing us. They were damning us. They were condemning us. And, and Jesus bore them. And now, because he bore them, we've been accounted righteous. Just as Isaiah says. 
And the point that I'm making is that everything about Jesus' life, as I've already said, was scripted in advance according to divine wisdom to accomplish a holy mission. Now think about the way our text from Revelation began today. Think about it. You may have read right over that part, but think about how it began. It said, and a great sign appeared in heaven. Not on the earth. Certainly not in hell, not in some spiritual realm outside of these domains, but a great sign appeared in heaven. What does that scream to you? It screams this. Heaven is the seat, the very center of God's authority. And this means that in all of that play that was being played out in that vision that God was calling the shots. He was unfolding his plan in Jesus Christ, despite the appearances, despite a dragon, he was unfolding his plan in Christ and the hellish threats from the devil and wicked men were totally immaterial because God had decreed what would happen. That's really, really good news. I don't want to throw you cues all morning, but that's really good news. Really good news. What God has done in Christ is not only divine in its, in its kind of structure, but it's also progressive in nature. Things that oftentimes seem small and seemingly insignificant, they often become more powerful and more impressive with time. Many of you have seen a huge oak tree or a redwood tree or something like that. But no one looks upon, rarely looks upon, I should say, teeny tiny little acorn and imagine the potential that that sucker has in it. Become a giant oak. To apply this to Christ, to say that things are progressive in nature, it doesn't mean that there's some saving work that's undone, that's left for Christ to accomplish. He meant what he said when he declared from the cross, it is finished. He meant that. But it's like how shifting tectonic plates under the ocean will cause a a, a tsunami. At first, if you were right under that, when it was happening, and it's happening under you beneath the ocean waves, you may not even notice it. The, The effect would be completely unseen. But eventually, you know what happens. It builds to a tidal wave that crashes into the shore and it devastates everything in its path with destructive force. That's what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is similarly, right now, right in the middle of our point in history, the kingdom of God is on the move. That's good news. The kingdom of God is on the move. It's, it's happening. There's this, there's this impending crash, but it's not a crash of destruction. It's a crash of glory that is coming with the move of the kingdom of God. Even at times, if you're looking around and you see the political environment and, and, and things on the news and, and you go, I don't see anything. I don't feel anything in this visible realm of here and now where I live. I'm telling you the kingdom of God is moving. There's a crash coming. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And nothing in its path will be left unchanged. Now the central character in John's vision is a woman. And the Bible describes this woman as one who is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head with a crown of twelve 
stars. Now, although there are similarities in this story, the pregnant woman gives birth, this this vision is not a description of earthly Mary, who we would think of. But it's it's a vision of all who like Mary, as it says later in the book of Revelation, keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. More specifically, she represents Israel, the people of God. That's who she represents. Her association with Israel is clarified when we remember Joseph's dream. Do you guys remember Joseph from the book of, not uh, Jesus' earthly father, but Joseph from the book of Genesis? Remember he had some dreams, and in his dream in Genesis 37, he describes his father, his mother, his brothers, all of these people being the patriarchs of Israel. He describes them as the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars. Do you see the similarity there? Exactly the same things this woman was adorned with in John's vision. And, and the Bible tells us that this woman was pregnant. And, and, and not only is she pregnant, at the very moment we read of it, she's crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. We see her imminently about to give birth. The time has come. This is important. See, because pregnancy always means anticipation. It always means that we're waiting for something that's going to be good. It's anticipation. In days gone by, we don't hear it much anymore. You do every once in a while. But in days gone by, pregnant people were described as expecting. Maybe you couldn't talk about pregnancy in polite companies. Oh, she's expecting. You bet she's expecting. And as Caleb has helped us for the past few weeks so clearly see expectation is the theme of the Advent season. We're waiting for something good. In this case, in the woman of the vision, though, the, the, the waiting is over. The time has arrived. Pregnancy not only means expectation, anticipation, but it means newness. To, the, the, all of our hopes are wrapped up in our kids because it means an older generation can now make way for a new one. Things change when babies come into the house. Amen? Where's Sierra at this morning? You've kind of seen that, haven't you? <laughs> so, yeah. So t- things change when babies come into the house. They're reset. And this comes with palpable excitement. When John the Baptist was born, they looked at him and they said, what is this child going to be? When Moses was born, they said, what is this child going to be? There's palpable excitement. But... But in this vision, there was another character. Do you remember? It wasn't just a pregnant woman. There was another vision. The Bible says a great red dragon. Red being uh, symbolic of warfare, of, of hostility, of blood. A great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his head, seven diadems or crowns. And this dragon represents the devil. And the multiple heads on this this dragon represent the many forms that evil takes. Charles Ellicott pointed this out and he said, think about it, the woman has one job to do, give birth to a baby. But this enemy comes in in seven different ways, seven different forms of evil comes against her. It's ten horns means that he's vicious, that he's armed, he's able to attack. And these crowns on his head indicate that he has been vested with power. 
He's been invested with power both legitimately through human sin and illegitimately through his own deceit. And we see that he succeeded in in influencing others to join in his evil rebellion against the order. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. But the most macabre element of this dragon that we see in this vision is his wrathful, ravening hunger. He says, and the dragon stood before the woman... This is a graphic image, but try to imagine in your head. The, the, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child. So this dragon stands by, he's licking his lips, waiting to consume the child when it's born. And then the child is born. And this corresponds to the nativity story that we all love so much from the Gospel of Luke. Luke says, and she gave birth, she being Mary, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And so we see this drama between the child and the dragon played out throughout Christ's life. This this desire to devour him that was started at his birth. You remember, the dragon it was always intent on devouring the child. He wanted to devour him by jealous Herod's evil decree that all the male children his age be murdered mercilessly. He, he wanted to devour him by tempting him for those hungry 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. He even wanted to devour him by the very contempt of his own hometown neighbors who who seized him and tried to toss him off of a cliff. And nothing, I'm telling you as the sons and daughters, as the offspring of the Lord Jesus, nothing has changed in the bloodthirsty nature of Jesus' enemy. Nothing has changed. Think he hated Jesus? He did. He hates you too because you belong to Jesus. And Peter points that out. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's still looking for something, someone, anyone that he can devour. But here's some more good news. Every single scheme of the devil, of the dragon, failed miserably. Herod died while Jesus was hiding with his family in Egypt. He withstood every single temptation in the desert by quoting to the devil the book of Deuteronomy. Every single one. He walked right through that that mob, that angry mob in in his hometown completely unscathed. The dragon would chomp and he would miss every time. Couldn't devour him. So the enemy had one last tactic, this dragon, this red angry dragon. If he couldn't devour him through external means, he would attack his person just like he had done with Job in the Old Testament. He would incite the religious leaders of the day to absolute hatred of Jesus. 
He would inspire them to fabricate false charges against him. He would motivate the Romans to comply with the Jews' demand for the death penalty, you know, just to keep the peace. He would ensure that Christ himself would die a shameful, public, painful, utterly unjust death. But what he could not have fully understood as he thought that his moment would arrive, that he could finally devour the child. He just couldn't have fully understood that Christ had a destiny that was divine in purpose, that was divine in origin. And Revelation tells us that he was one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And see, this rod that he holds, it's not a royal scepter like you see a king hold. It's actually more of a shepherd's club. He used to beat wolves to death to protect the sheep. Psalm uh, chapter 2, verse 7 prophesied these same things about Christ. It said, in, in these terms, it said, You shall break them, speaking to Jesus, You shall break them, the nations, with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Think Jesus is in charge? Think Jesus is in charge? He's in charge. I find it interesting when John is describing this vision that he didn't give a vivid imagery to describe the crucifixion or the resurrection here. Instead, while the dragon is intent on devouring the child, John sums up Christ's redemptive work like this. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now think about that. What does that say? You know, some of us have this thing like, like there was, there were things that were in jeopardy. There were things that were in question. What if Jesus had, had given into temptation? What if Jesus had, had not gone to the cross? What if Jesus this and what if Jesus that? Let me tell you something. The, the reason that John goes right from this child was born, he was destined to rule the nations and he was caught up to God is because Jesus's destiny as the son of God was already in place. So the baby, The baby in a manger was just as authoritative as the ascended Lord. Just as authoritative. So John John says those are important details, but we're getting right to the point. This baby is sitting, he grew up to be a man, and he's sitting at the right hand of God. That's what you need to know. Now we may not think much, you and I, or often enough about Christ's ascension. Naturally, we we tend to place more emphasis on the crucifixion and the resurrection, and those are vital. We ought to do that. We ought to think about those things a lot. But I want you to see this this morning, if you never have before, that it was in Christ's ascension where he rose to the Father, where he was crowned victorious, where he was exalted by God the Father. He was vindicated in his suffering. And he didn't just go to heaven... Like we think of, we go to heaven when he died. He didn't just go to heaven, but he ascended to a throne to rule and to make intercession for you and I. He is enthroned right now. He's not just in heaven playing a harp on a cloud somewhere. He is enthroned in heaven. Seated at the right hand of God, the man Jesus Christ. And this means, this means... If you're not keeping up with the implications of everything I said, this means the dragon miserably failed. He failed. Completely, utterly. And the child he was intent on devouring has been exalted to the highest place at the right hand of God Almighty. 
The dragon would make no feast of this child, but he would be defeated by him. As we read later in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Think about what that's saying. The dragon could not consume Jesus Christ, couldn't consume the child, but the child upon his throne will consume the devil forever in wrathful judgment. It gives me chills just a little bit. Both the Jews and the Gentiles that assaulted Jesus and rejected his grace would also be judged and ruled by him. Listen to what Jesus himself said in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. There's some more enthronement for you to think about. Before him will be gathered all the nations, Jew and Gentile, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And this is what I mean by the progressive nature of God's purposes in Christ. The dragon, threatening with horns on his crowned head, has been stripped of his victory and is now powerless to do Christ or any of us that belong to him any real harm. Been stripped. Martin Luther sang mockingly of this dragon in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Listen to these powerful words. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. The infant, as we see him as an infant in that image of just the moment of birth, he seems so vulnerable, so helpless, so subject to rejection and weakness. Even Isaiah in that chapter 53, he pointed this out. He said he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No one just looked at Jesus as a baby and and, and was impressed by him. No matter what you've seen in, in Roman Catholic works of art, Jesus had no glowing halo over his head as he laid in the manger. And that, 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 that line in the song, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes, that's baloney. Jesus exercised those lungs just like any little baby you've ever known very well. I guarantee you, Mary and Joseph, with the Son of God in their home, wished he would be quiet and go to sleep, just like you've done with all of your your kids. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men. What in the world is a baby going to do? A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief is one From whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But guess what? There's a few more pages in the Bible than that. And Paul says this in Philippians. Paul tells us that God, in response to Jesus' obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, that God has exalted him 
And he's bestowed upon him a name that is above every other name. There's no more turning your face from him. There's no more despising and rejecting him. He's given him a name above all other names. And then this, this incredible declaration is made in Philippians that one day there will be an enunciation of that name and every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You're coming up on Christmas, thinking about celebrating. The, tr- the gifts are under the tree or will soon be there. You've been playing the all-Christmas music radio station for about a month now, to the chagrin of Robbie Abney. <laughs> and I want to tell you, though, I want to tell you, though, he is not a child, a child, shivering in the cold, and he does not need your stinking silver and gold. He is a king, a king, and he deserves your obedience. He deserves your trust. He deserves your love, and he deserves your devotion. And he has set a place for you at his table. A king, not a baby in a manger, a king has set a place for you at his royal table. And invited you there. So don't despise his grace. It is right now at this moment in history. It is offered to you freely. Don't despise his grace. And all this tells us that Jesus Christ. No matter how kind of egalitarian we approach religion in our world today. Jesus Christ is not one God among many. He is the only God. He is co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And Christianity, therefore, isn't just one belief system among many reasonable options, equal with Catholicism, Judaism, Mormonism, and any other ism that you can think of. It's not, it's not just one among many. Paul actually says that the church, meaning Christians, the, the body of Christ, is the pillar and foundation or buttress or ground or support of the truth. This is where in the body of Christ, though sometimes we get things wrong, the body of Christ is where truth resides. So Paul is saying, the absolute truth of the gospel's claims and the universal lordship of Christ speak therefore to the cosmic scope of God's purposes in Christ. Now many who you work with, many in your family will disagree with that. They'll say, well, that's your opinion. Okay. It's not your responsibility to, to, to try to do some manipulative job on them to get them to change their mind. They may disagree, that's okay. Because we're responsible to confidently, boldly, persistently proclaim truth in love and gentleness, but constantly proclaim it. Love and gentleness, and let the Holy Spirit do the persuading. Let me tell you something, he's really good at it. He's really, really good at it. I've told you over and over, I won't go into all the details because most of you who go to church or have, have heard them enough, but I was 16 years old. I could not care any more about Jesus than I could about a counterfeit nickel. Didn't care anything about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit came to me one night out of the clear blue and convinced me that Jesus was Lord and that he deserved my life. I didn't do that. No preacher did that. The Holy Spirit did it. And he can do it with your friends and loved ones too. 
But first, none of that matters. Our, our proclamation, our persuasion, none of it matters if we are not, and please hear me on this, especially you who are Christians. Some of you aren't Christians, that's okay, but listen to me if you're a Christian. We have to first, before any of that matters, preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. We have to proclaim the gospel to ourselves. If we don't do that, not only will, you know, if we don't preach it to ourselves, we not only won't proclaim it to others. It has to be deeply connected to our hearts. It has to be deep. We have to be deeply convinced of the gospel or we'll never proclaim it to anyone else. And worse than that, we'll barely believe it ourselves. The forces of this life, this the, the dragon will come against you and you'll start believe everything that he says because you have not convinced, allowed the Holy Spirit to convince you by the oft repetition of the gospel. You need to preach the gospel to yourself every single day. The cosmic scope of Christ's authority and victory is a great place to try our hearts and see where we need to grow in our faith and in our trust in God's word. If we believe that Jesus is Lord... And most of you would say you do, but if you believe it, why are we withholding anything from him? You don't withhold things from a Lord. You don't withhold things from a master. You give them to him. If we believe that Jesus is all satisfying, why are so often all of us found chasing so many other things? If we believe that he reigns, that he's enthroned, Why are we building our own kingdoms and defending our own reputations instead of building his kingdom and upholding his reputation? Which kingdom do we really believe is going to last? There are a few, if any, religious traditions and moralistic adjustments adjustments, rather that you're going to make in your life to make any impact on the lost around you. You can be just the best, most moral person ever. You can do all the churchy stuff, all of it, and you're not going to make any impact on the lost around you. But I promise you this, I promise, I guarantee it, if you live your life in a way that demonstrates that you have a loose grip on the world, the world will stand up and take notice of that. They may be convicted, which we hope. They may mock you, but they will give notice. Or, and if they give notice, they will give account to the Lord as well. And we hope that they give account to the Lord this side of eternity so that they can be, be redeemed and saved and be one of us as well. Moreover, if we believe that we're protected by Jesus' victory, why wouldn't we take more risks for his glory? Instead of being like that fearful man in Jesus' parable who buried his talent in the sand rather than investing it for the master's profit. The woman, the Bible says, the people of God, as we discovered that she is, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Don't have time to go into that, but I believe that 1260 days speaks of the time between Jesus's ascension and Jesus's second coming, this age that we're in right now. So get this. So she goes, she's in the wilderness, she's protected by God, she's nourished. This dragon that we see in this story 
cannot ultimately harm you. And this is only because, not because you're so spiritually scared to death of you, he ain't scared about you, uh, of you at all. But this is because God has prepared a shelter, a place of protection for you in Jesus. And he will nourish you in Jesus. The place that he's prepared for you, the Bible and the church historically has called that place grace. The devil cannot harm you in grace. The law of God cannot condemn you in grace. Your own sins cannot disqualify you in grace. Grace will teach you to obey and to please God more and more. And then lastly, God's purposes in Christ are also eternal in duration. Once again, we look at the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, as all the people are worshiping the Lamb, now seated on his throne, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Eternal in duration is the kingdom of this Lord. Everything I've declared to you this morning is what Jesus stated in that simple statement he made before his ascension where he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority speaks of the cosmic scope of God's purposes in in him. Given to me speaks of the divinity of those purposes. The progressive nature of God's purposes is seen that Jesus won this authority on the cross. Everything changed when Christ died and rose again. And because of that obedience... He's now exalted to the highest place. And the eternal duration of God's purposes is clear when we see Christ not on a cross, not in a manger, but when we see him enthroned, the eternal duration of God's purposes is clear. Another picture from the book of Revelation, this time chapter 4. Whenever the living creatures that inhabit that place give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne. That's the context. He's seated on the throne. Who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall before, down before him. Who is seated on the throne. And worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns once again before the throne. Saying worthy are you our Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. And to think. All of this. All of this majesty, all of this honor, all of this salvation is because of a little bitty baby born while his parents were out of town and unsheltered. No one noticed except a mama who treasured these things up in her heart, a stand-in daddy who had heard promises from the lips of an angel, and a bunch of blue-collar shepherds who heard an angelic choir. No one else noticed. But as I said last week, we don't get overly sentimental about a baby in a manger, but we get really excited about a boy who grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. We have cast our hopes on the miracle worker, the wisdom teacher, the Pharisee confronter, the demon ejector, the master of the wind and sea, the one who raises the dead, the one who walks on water. And we love him while no one could take his life from him. He laid it down willingly. And we love him for that. 
He laid it down as a perfect sacrifice for us while we were still sinners. He didn't wait for you to get your religious ducks in a row. He loved you and died for you while you were still a sinner. Yet death could not hold him. So he rose again on the third day. And soon after, he ascended to the right hand of his father. Where he still sits enthroned today at this very moment. He is enthroned. So today we celebrate his incarnation around these tables. And we remember all that he did in his earthly life. Remember what he did? He said, this is my body broken for you. He said, this is the, the blood of a new covenant. We remember that. But we also remember as well all that he promised to do. He said, do this in proclaiming the Lord's death. When? Until he comes. When we celebrate the grace In this moment, we're celebrating the grace that sheltered us in the wilderness of this world. This world is a wilderness. A wilderness. But we're sheltered and we're nourished and we're protected in the middle of this wilderness. Why? Because of grace. If I could have my communion workers. Let's read these familiar words of institution from the book of 1 Corinthians. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. A baby was born for you. He lived. He he grew up. He died. He was resurrected. He ascended for you. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Oh, thank God for a new covenant. That old one was killing us because we couldn't live up to it. There's been a new covenant in his blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand with me and we'll give thanks for this meal? Would you just take 10 seconds? The, the danger that's kind of tucked into the beauty of ceremony and tradition in the church is that that old saying that familiarity breeds contempt. And so I want you who are believers, if you're not a believer, don't come up this morning. This is not for you. It's not that we're not extending hospitality to you. It don't mean anything to you. It's like I've often said, it's like wearing my wedding ring. You might enjoy the gold, but the, the, it, the symbol doesn't mean anything to you. So don't come if you don't know Jesus. But if you'd like to know Jesus, we'd love to show you how. But for the rest of you who do know Jesus, take 10 seconds. And let's do what Jesus did that night. Let's give thanks in your own way, in your own words. You can speak it out or you can say it quietly, but in your own way, let's give thanks for the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. And think about that incarnation really really means, the word literally means taking on flesh. And he took on flesh so that it could be battered, it could be torn, it could be pierced, 
and he did that for you. So just, if you haven't done this for a long time, just take a moment and tell him thank you for what he's done. Precious, enthroned, glorious, all triumphant, sin, death, and devil defeating Jesus, we proclaim your glory this morning. We thank you that you are high and lifted up. And that the train of your glory not only fills a Jewish temple, but it fills the whole earth now. And God, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came pure and holy and you allowed your holiness to be the vessel that bore all of our sin. All of my mockery, all of my blasphemy, all of my lust, all of my lying, all of my deceit, all of my theft, all of my cheating, all of my selfishness, all of my pride was placed on your holy shoulder. Now thank you, Lord, that you your shoulders bore it, and it bore it, the weight so heavy that it actually killed you. Lord, I thank you for that. Thank you for your precious sacrifice. Thank you, Lord, that through your obedience, I am one of the many that have been accounted righteousness in righteousness because you bore my iniquity. And I thank you for that, Lord. Help me, Lord, to just treasure you, Lord, and not be deceived by the folly, foolishness, and treasures of this world, so-called treasures of this world that pass away so quickly, Lord, but to treasure you, to say to this world, who have I in heaven but Jesus? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your incarnation. Thank you that it was for me and my brothers and sisters here that your sacred head was wounded. In Jesus' name, we give you glory. Amen.